Dan, would you mind turning on the um, back projector here? All right, so we've got a new series, as you can tell by the title, The Exalted Christ here. I actually have a pretty lengthy introduction before I even tell you what the series is about. So bear with me, if you will, and we'll just kind of work into why we think this series is necessary uh, here at Grace. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, if you would. Colossians chapter 1. All right, so about four years ago now, I was doing a internship in a suburb of Detroit. And basically how it worked is there was a group of 10 of us guys who were assigned uh, to a different church every week in Detroit. And we would help the pastor put on like a cookout or do door-to-door -door evangelism or any number of things that the pastor needed us to do. And there was one pastor in particular who assigned us to a neighborhood in Detroit and he paired us off and told us, I want you guys to do more than just invite these people to my church. I would like you, if at all possible, to share the gospel with them. So it really heightened the door-to-door -door experience. Uh, it, a lot of times, as you know, if you've ever done this before, it's just kind of knock on someone's door. Hey, do you church any, attend church anywhere? No, okay, here's a flyer for grace. We'd love to have you sometime. Uh, our experience was a little bit different than that because the pastor wanted us to get to the gospel. We were asking some pretty direct, pretty pointed questions. Uh, so in, in, in one instance, uh, someone who was Greek Orthodox answered the door. And I know nothing about Greek, or, Greek Orthodoxy and... So we're like, okay, what do you believe about Jesus? Uh, how do you believe that you inherit eternal life? And as we're dialoguing with this person, we have a conversation about, okay, what do you believe? As you can imagine, we had some pretty direct questions that led to some pretty interesting conversations. And on one occasion, a lady who was a Jehovah's Witness answered the door. And she turned out to be pretty well trained she knew a lot about what they believed, and she was able to defend her beliefs fairly well. In fact, she took us to Colossians chapter 1 as evidence for the belief that Jehovah's Witnesses hold that Jesus is a created being. If you didn't know that already, that's what they think, that Jesus was created. And here she is and says, don't you know what Colossians 1 says? So let's look at Colossians chapter 1, where she took us. Colossians 1, verse 15. We read, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Stop there. This lady says, can't you see? Your own Bible tells you Jesus is created. It says, he's what? The firstborn. Our understanding of firstborn is you were created, you were made, you're the firstborn, right? We understand that. And so she is using the scriptures to legitimize something that I know fundamentally is wrong. And to be honest, I was like shook. I was like, I don't even know what to do when someone is so directly contradicting something that I've just held on to forever. I mean, I was raised in Christianity. I never doubted that Jesus was God. Of course he is. 
He's eternal. He's part of the Trinity. He has no beginning or end. And you hear this lady is using scripture to say, no, look, he's created. He's the firstborn. And I was like, what in the world is going on here? Thankfully, I was with another guy who was able to kind of like uh, intervene and, and help me out of that situation. I wanted to give him like a spiritual like fist bump afterwards. I was like, man, I was in trouble there. I had no idea how to answer this lady. But I think what even shocked me even more is that I didn't know why it was important that Jesus was God. Say, for instance, in this hypothetical situation, is it possible that a created Jesus could have died for my sins and saved me? Is that possible? And I didn't think so, but I didn't know why. Why is that not possible? I guess the question I was asking is, how critical is Jesus' deity to the gospel and why? Are there any consequences for getting Jesus wrong in a religion? At first glance, the implications of Jehovah's Witnesses' theology, rather their Christology, seems to be not too dissimilar from us. Look, I've got on the screen here a quote taken right off of the Jehovah's Witness website. It reads this. We believe in Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have faith that Jesus came to earth from heaven and gave his perfect human life as a ransom sacrifice. His death and resurrection make it possible for those exercising faith in him to gain everlasting life. What are your guys' thoughts after seeing that? Seems pretty orthodox, doesn't it? We would probably affirm almost what they're saying there, right? I think we have to ask ourselves then, are there any real consequences to getting Jesus wrong? Could Jesus be just a created being? And they believe in the created Jesus, and we believe in the God Jesus, and we end up at the same place. Listen, we do disagree pretty regularly with other Christians who are well-intentioned and well-educated. You know, for instance, some Christians hold to uh, the senior pastor and deacons leadership model. And here at Grace, we have the elders and deacons model. And other churches say, hey, I think that circumcision has replaced baptism in the New Testament. Some Christians say, I think that the rapture is going to happen at the beginning of the tribulation. I think the rapture is going to happen in the middle. I think the rapture is going to happen at the end. And we look at these people and we say, hey, we disagree with you, but we'll see you in heaven. That that isn't critical to our faith, that we disagree about when the rapture happens, or that we disagree about how to govern a church, or what role circumcision plays in a baptismic sense, like Presbyterians would disagree with us. But what if you get something about the nature of Jesus wrong? Where does that leave you? In the same paragraph that I took this sentence from, I want to show you another sentence on the Jehovah's Witness website. It says, we do not worship Jesus as we do not believe that he is almighty God. Now the alarm bells better be ringing in your mind, right? Okay, something's wrong here. 
Jesus is God. Follow their logic. If Jesus is a created being, he's lesser than God. And thus, according to them, he's not deserving of your worship. They only worship God and they don't worship Jesus. To put it simply, a created Jesus is not God, according to Jehovah's Witness. And look at following this logic even further than what they say is a requirement for salvation. Salvation requires more than believing in Jesus as your savior. You see where this has led us? Started off sounding pretty nice, but a belief about Jesus that he's created leads you to saying that salvation requires more than believing in Jesus. And what is that more? Well, they tell us. They're open about it. The more is believe. It's learn what the Bible teaches. It's repent, get baptized, obey Jesus' instructions, and endure to the end. And if you do all of those things, if you do this more, you are assured of eternal life. We will address the deity of Christ next week. But I want to ask you guys, where does the Bible contradict if you, if you could identify a verse for me, this idea of Christ plus your works, what passage of scripture would you take them to and say, uh, I cannot affirm what you're saying here? Okay. Shane. I feel like the thief on the cross completely contradicts this. Yeah. Jesus basically said, today you'll be with me in paradise, and he had no time for any works. Yep. Yeah. Copy. Yep, yep. We're going to get to that verse later. Will. Ephesians 2 8 9. Yep, let me throw it on the screen for you. <laughs> Here's the conclusion, though, that Jehovah's Witnesses are making a created Jesus is not sufficient to save you on his own. If he's not God, you need something else to help you out. If he's just created, he did some of the work, but it is on you to do the rest. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We'll just mention it. We have it on our sign out there. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. The Bible is clear on this issue. It is not Christ and something else and your works. It says, not a result of works. So Jehovah's as witness have taken some true things from the Bible. That first statement that I showed that seems pretty orthodox, seems like it's the truth. They've combined it with their own misinterpretations from scripture, like we see here in Colossians, and they've arrived at heresy. Plain and simple. That's what it is. And how serious is it to distort the gospel like this? Is this just worthy of like a little slap on the wrist? Hey, don't do that again. Look what Paul says about distortions of the gospel. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And Paul says, in case you didn't understand me, I'm going to say it again. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. The word accursed here, maybe you're thinking of anathema. It's to be condemned. You see how seriously Paul is taking distortions of the gospel? If you twist it, Paul says you should be condemned. If we think about it, people who are teaching a false gospel are condemning those who believe in that framework. Paul says the teacher should be condemned. Check out what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, I'm afraid. This church doesn't have discernment. I'm afraid your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Paul says, listen, there are people who are coming and proclaiming another Jesus even. And I'm afraid that you don't have the discernment necessary to say, get out of here. We have no place for that kind of teaching in our church. You put up with it readily enough. Look at Paul's conclusion about these false teachers. He says, for such men are false apostles. They're deceitful workmen. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. What does Paul say is the origin for this false teaching about another Jesus? Satan and his servants. And he says, it's no surprise. They disguise themselves. They're very good about this. They look like servants of righteousness, but their origin is the devil. False teaching about Jesus comes from Satan. When you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong. And it's kind of tricky because we have a lot of religions that incorporate Jesus into their system. But they don't know the Jesus of the Bible. In essence, what the Jehovah's Witnesses have done is they have taken and created a Jesus of their own liking. And they've named him Jesus, but they've tacked on all of these unbiblical things about him and concluded, well, you need Jesus and something else to be saved, to inherit eternal life. And that Jesus does not and cannot save you because he doesn't exist. The reality is that a surprising number of religions acknowledge the existence of Jesus. I'm going to show you some on the screen here. We've got the Jehovah's Witnesses. They say this about Christ. He's a powerful spirit, and he's created by God. But their conclusion about salvation is that it's faith in Jesus plus works. We would say, eh, you're wrong. Mormons, he's created by God. He achieved deity later. He's a brother to Satan. Again, salvation, faith in Jesus, plus works. Again, it's not the way. Catholicism, as far as I can tell in my brief research, they do get Jesus right. But look at what they say about salvation. It's faith and repentance, but baptism, 
confession, the Eucharist, these are all requirements of salvation for a Catholic. Works. And you could go on and on and on. Islam says that Jesus is a good prophet. Judaism says that Jesus is a good teacher. Hinduism says that Jesus is a God among many. But here's the reality. The Jesus of Islam does not save you. The Jesus of Mormonism cannot save you. They do not exist. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you really quick here. What if I told you I was on a walk this week? I like to walk in the streets here behind the church. And I found a gold brick lying on the ground. Now, a gold brick weighs something like 24 pounds, and it's worth 750 grand. If I find a gold brick on the ground, I'm like, man, I actually brought it in to show you guys today. Here it is right here. I found a gold brick. I'm planning after church this morning to go to a Corvette dealership and hand it to the car salesman and say, you know, take my pick. I want three of them. Right? And, and I'm fully trusting that this gold brick is going to land me a Corvette. You guys are laughing. Why? This isn't gold. It doesn't weigh 24 pounds. It's not worth 750 grand. Doesn't have the chemical makeup of gold. Doesn't have the color of gold. The reality is what? It's not gold. Can I plead with you that no matter what you call Jesus, if he is not the Jesus as scripture describes him, then it's not him. And that Jesus cannot save you in the same way that this brick will not land me a Corvette in my driveway. Does that make sense? You can't just take the attributes you like and make your own religion and ascribe the name Jesus to it and say, I'm trusting in it. If it's not the Jesus of this book and how he is described here in the scriptures, I hope you can see that getting Jesus is very important. It has eternal consequences. That was the lengthy introduction to our series this summer. You saw it's called The Exalted Christ. We've got a couple goals for this study. We're going to be answering some questions like why is it important that Jesus is God? Why is it important that he's a man? We're going to be talking about the atonement, uh, his second coming, election, all sorts of topics pertaining to the person of Christ this summer. One of the things that we want to do is lay a biblical foundation for the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I hope that I've illustrated this morning that there are all sorts of beliefs about Jesus, but we're after what the Bible says about him. And we want to make sure that we get him right and not be led astray by people who would come and try to teach things about him that just are not true. We want to understand that some of these religions that claim the name of Christ are not cousins to Christianity. 
It's not like, oh, you're kind of related to us. We kind of believe the same thing. No, there's no middle ground. Either you believe in him or you don't. And secondly, we want to cultivate a greater love for Jesus Christ. As we open the pages of scripture and as we examine who he is, I hope that your hearts swell with worship. You're like, wow. Because here's the truth. The real Jesus is better than the fabricated Jesus of other religions. And we know him. We've put our faith in him. He's so much better than a man-made Jesus, one after our own making. How many of you guys are familiar with the Reformation? I hope most of us are. This historically began when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses uh, to the wall of a church in Wittenberg. And there are these five, they're called solas, that have been attributed to the Reformation. These things that are the hallmarks of Christianity that the reformers broke away from the Catholic Church for doing. They were veering further and further into just this works-based salvation. And the reformers broke off and identified these five things that are the hallmarks of the true faith. Does anyone know one of the five? They're called, a sola means alone. Does anyone know one of the five solas? Hava? Yeah, Christ alone. Shane? Scripture alone. Yeah, faith alone. The other two are grace alone and to the glory of God alone. We're going to be looking at two this morning. I'm sure you can probably guess which two. Faith alone and Christ alone. This is what distinguishes us from all other religions. It's faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. For as many different religions have all these ideas about who Christ is and what is required for eternal life, the Bible is not unclear about this. And I'm going to make that point to you this morning by looking at a lot of scriptures. And practically, I think it's just important for us to know some of these things. In studying for this, as you can tell, I was on the Jehovah's Witness website. I was on Catholic websites. I was on a Mormon website. And you're seeing scripture being used to support wrong doctrine. And it really forces you to say, man, do I know what I believe? Because other people have twisted truth. And they use it to support their own worldview. And seeing these things is like a reality check. Like, whoa, I better be grounded in my faith. I better know what I believe and why could I defend faith alone in Christ alone? The reality is that in the course of our everyday life, we're going to come across people and situations in which we're going to have to know what the truth is. So for instance, I've got a couple of examples listed for you. In a moment of seriousness or transparency, a coworker says to you, I really am hoping that my good works outweigh my bad after death. And, and while you know that there's something wrong with that statement, you can appreciate the fact that they know there's life after death, and they're trying to do the best they can to do something about it. Maybe a person with a Catholic background comes up to you and asks, 
what do you guys believe that's so different from us? Maybe you have people come to your doorstep and ask you if you know who Jesus is. And you better be sure that you guys are talking about the same Jesus, right? Listen, two of these three, three things have happened to me in the last month. My neighbor Chuck, who doesn't know the Lord, tells me, man, I'm really trying to make sure that I'm just doing a lot of good in life. Do I tell Chuck? Yeah, keep it up. It's not the way. And I want scripture to inform our perception of this. What does scripture say? There's one very popular thing that unbelievers like to hang on to, that people do a lot of really good things in life. Would scripture affirm that statement? That we're fundamentally good people? No, it wouldn't. Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There is no confusion in Scripture here. We are fundamentally not good, and we do not do good. And when we stack that up against the glory of God, as Romans says later on in the same chapter, we fall short of it. We're not good people. At some point in our transmission of the gospel, we need to help people understand you're not good. Secondly, what about the more subtle question? Do works contribute to your salvation? We've listed three religions, at least, that say, yeah, it's Christ, but something else. Do works contribute to your salvation? Let's see what scripture says. Again, it's not unclear on this issue. 1 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Galatians 3, now it is evident that no one is justified by God before the law. And finally, Ephesians 2.9, our salvation is not a result of works so that no one may boast. I know I run the risk of being redundant here, but is the point not clear? Do works contribute to our salvation? They don't. And scripture says as much. People who say that works are contributing to their salvation are getting the gospel wrong. This is a problem. So if it's not works, then how is one justified before God? This is where the other one of the solas comes in. It's faith alone. Look what Romans 3 says. We hold that one is justified or declared righteous by faith apart 
from the works of the law. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Even the Old Testament gets in on the action here and it says, the righteous shall live by his faith. And this verse is picked up in the New Testament. Salvation is faith alone. And in whom do we place that faith? This is the second sola. It's in Christ alone. Look what the scripture says here. Galatians chapter 2 contains one of the clearest descriptions of what is and what is not required for the gospel. It says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It sounds here like Paul's being a little redundant himself, right? He says it like three different ways. Works do not justify you. What is it? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And you're probably wondering, why don't you just show us this verse at the outset? You've spent a lot of time clicking through verses, and this sums it up all nicely for you. Here's the point. I want this to be cemented in your mind as to what the true gospel is. And to know that it's not just Galatians 2.16 that describes this. I hope that you've seen just by the abundance of scriptures that I've rapidly clicked through. This is the teaching of the Bible. Salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. Works are not part of the equation. In fact, you are not even a fundamentally good person. The Bible is not vague about this matter. And so I want it to be cemented in your mind. When someone says to you, I'm a really good person, you should be thinking, you're really not. When someone says, I think God will accept my good works as he weighs them on this eternal scale. No, it's not what's going to happen. I think that I am believing in Christ and my good works to gain me favor with God and to get to heaven. And we should be thinking again, that's just not how the Bible lays it out. I'm sorry, but, but you've got something about the gospel wrong. Salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. So anyone who believes or practices something contrary to that is wrong. I want us to turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 for a case study of sorts. Galatians chapter 5, Paul is dealing here with a group of people called the Judaizers. These are people who taught that salvation was a combination of Christ 
and keeping the Old Testament law. In fact, back in Galatians chapter 2, if you remember the story, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but then when all of the other Jews showed up, what did Peter do? He separated himself. He kept the Jewish law. He didn't eat with Gentiles anymore, and Paul rebukes him. And Paul actually says that your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. You are saying Christ alone, but you're living as if it's keeping the Jewish law still. That's what your actions are communicating. Here in Galatians chapter 5, Paul is dealing with the issue of circumcision, another right of the Old, old Covenant law. Look what Paul says in verse 2. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated then to keep the whole law. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's setting circumcision and Christ in opposition to each other. And he's saying, if you think that keeping the law earns you favor with God, then you need to set Christ aside and obey the whole law. If you're going to require circumcision of people, keep the whole law, Christ is no advantage to you. It's Christ alone. Do you see that? It's not even the Jewish rituals and rites. And he goes on to say in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That is strong language. You keep the law, you're severed from Christ. It's Christ alone. Verse 5, Paul reiterates, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And again in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. See what Paul is saying here? It's not your works that are gaining you favor with God. Don't be banking on circumcision to get you any closer. It means nothing to him. It is only faith in Christ. Well, up to this point, I know that a lot of what I said has been a rebuttal of false teaching, kind of stacking biblical Christianity against some of these cults. But I do want to encourage you from a different perspective this morning, that the gospel really is that simple. It really is. Just faith alone and Christ alone. And I do not want you to leave this morning thinking, oh man, I got saved when I was four and there's no way that I could have articulated that Jesus was God or any of these theological nuances and for you to leave here doubting and saying, oh, did I really not know the specifics of all this doctrine? Am I not saved? Listen, salvation is simple. It is faith alone in Christ alone. As Shane mentioned already, remember the thief on the cross? His salvation testimony is pretty much, I belong here, looks at Jesus, says, you don't, 
remember me in paradise. That's his salvation testimony. It's simple. Understanding that he deserved what he was getting. But just look into Jesus as someone who could save. It's simple. And we need to communicate the simplicity of the gospel. Because I'm sure you know unsaved people. We live in a part of the country that is, you know, notoriously atheist and agnostic and unchurched. And we need people to realize, listen, we are not out here teaching a salvation of Christ and then do all these other things. We are teaching it is faith in Christ alone. And I think as one of the goals of our study was, was to cultivate a love for Christ. I think just looking at this should help cultivate that love for Christ. Where we realize my salvation is not dependent on anything that I can do. Christ has accomplished it all. That should be like a huge burden off of our shoulders. That it's not on me to gain favor with God. In fact, I can't. But Christ did. And Jesus alone saves. I mentioned the thief on the cross. Remember the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16? He cries out to Peter, What must I do to be saved? He wants to know, I'm sure maybe many of us have cried out that same question. What must I do to be saved? And remember the response? Again, it's simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We know from other passages of scripture that this belief that is being talked about is not just a verbal or a mental assent. It's not just a Oh, yeah, I know he exists. Remember James says, even the demons have orthodox beliefs, right? The demons know that God is one. Verbal assent to the existence of Jesus does not save you. When Peter says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking about a true faith that turns away from your flesh, from your old self, from your desires, and turns to Christ and puts yourself under him and bends the knee of your heart and says, I'm yours. Forgive me. It's turning to Jesus alone who can save you. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, Actually, this was a couple months ago, back in January, I outlined this four-step method to share the gospel. Just wanted to revisit that briefly. You begin with God, describing who he is, how he's just, how he's holy. You move on to mankind and how we have fallen so short of God's glory. There is nothing we could do to earn our way back to God, to gain his favor, to cross the chasm that divided us, but in Christ and him alone, he accomplished our salvation. 
through his death on the cross, and it necessitates a response from us. Are we going to continue to live in unbelief when confronted with the person of Christ? Or are we going to repent and turn to him and find eternal life? There's just a brief, helpful method that I found in sharing the gospel. In using this skeleton of an outline, if you will, feel free to flesh it out. Spend some time talking about God, who he is, his character. Then talk about man and our depravity and Christ and lead them to a response. Just a couple of final thoughts this morning. I hope this lesson equipped you to know what is and what is not the gospel and who is and who is not Jesus. I hope my illustration with the brick was helpful. You can call this gold all you want, but this isn't buying me a Corvette. You can place your faith in the Jesus of Mormonism, but he can't save you. Secondly, I hope you realize that false teachers are out there. Paul was concerned about them. Paul talks about them in his epistles and says, listen, these people find their origin in the devil. They are leading people astray. They're proclaiming another Jesus and false Christ. Beware. I hope that we have found ourselves equipped to know. This is what the goal of the series is, to know this exalted Christ. To be able to defend our faith and say, you're getting something wrong about Jesus there when we hear that he's created. No, he's God. Theological errors have a ripple effect. When you believe Jesus is God, is, is created, excuse me, all of a sudden he's not God, he's not deserving of your worship, and he can't save you because it's then the work of Christ and then your own works combined for some sort of what they think is salvation. And so be alert when you hear these things. Stand firm in your faith. Be rooted in the scriptures. Be prepared and be ready to always give an answer. I really hope this is helpful for you. I'd love some feedback after. Uh, we'll be looking at the deity of Christ next week, his humanity, the third week, just exploring. Why are these things important? What does the Bible actually say about them? Yes, Colossians 1.15 does exist. We'll look at that verse next week and discover what it means that Jesus really is the firstborn of all creation. That is not a description of his rank or his origin. He is God in the flesh, and the scriptures affirm that, and we'll be looking at that next week. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would give us discerning minds to know what we believe and why to defend our faith against those who would seek to undermine it, against our adversary, the devil, as he is trying hard to blur the lines of true Christianity by bringing things that are very close, but not the truth. Lord, I just pray for, again, discernment. Help us to love you as we go through this study. We need you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.